The position of NHL head coach holds a strange spot in the heart of hockey fans. It is one of only 31, and soon to be 32, jobs of its kind. The odds of even spending one second as a head coach in the NHL are infinitesimal. We often focus on the odds of a player possibly making the NHL or even a single game, exceptionally covered by Ken Campbell and Ken Reed. Ken Campbell in Selling the Dream noted that in only Ontario, approximately 20 to 30,000 male athletes take part in minor hockey each year, and 25 of those players will play one game in the NHL. Coaching as well introduces us to a different aspect of the game, the tactical and motivational side. Coaches need to be more cerebral and have to communicate their ideas in a way that their players will understand. Think of a family game night and which member of your family you would rather explain the rules of the next game. Odds are, there are a few you wish would take the lead and a few you wish would come back in a couple of minutes. Of course, the stakes at the NHL level are much higher than a game of Uno. Coaches' abilities are connected to the success of their team over the season, which is connected to the day-to-day -day operations of the team, as well as the financial health of a franchise, the financial success of the players, and even the players' feelings of being part of a team. And over the past year, the coaching fraternity at the NHL level has found themselves reconciling with the tactics of the past and the actions of their colleagues. Mark Crawford, Bill Peters, and Mike Babcock have all had their legacies challenged by their past actions. A coach cannot even be reassigned or relieved of their duties without questioning their past actions, as we saw with Bruce Boudreau, Jim Montgomery, Gerard Gallant, or Pete DeBoer. While all these coaches experience success by getting to the highest level, they will likely be relegated to a footnote in the history of the franchise. They either represent a term where there was a lack of success for the franchise, or perhaps they were a coach during a time of struggle. Most coaches who don't represent a winning season don't experience their memory being associated with the team. The same cannot be said for Arizona, or in this case, the Phoenix Coyotes. The Desert franchise has for years been known as an also-ran-in-the-league, experiencing infrequent success as a franchise while at the same time experiencing some of the most turbulent financial strains the league has ever seen. However, during this time of struggle, they had one coach who simply cannot be ignored. Wayne Gretzky coached the team for four seasons from 2005 to 2009. The hope was that Gretzky could deliver as a coach the same way he did as a player. In the book This Is Your Brain on Sports, John Wertheim and Sam Summers noted that expertise means the ability to skip steps in a certain aspect of a game. Gretzky certainly had the ability to do that, but how would he explain the game to non-experts, who have to go through a checklist of procedures to accomplish a goal? During his time as coach, it's hard to determine if Gretzky ever did coach a seriously contending NHL squad. Does that mean he was a good coach? Was he unsuccessful as a coach? And how did the concerns of the franchise on a larger scale impact the team as a whole? Do we remember him as the greatest player of all time failing at something, or does this legacy of him as a coach damage who we remember him to be? Hi, I'm Travis Duncan, and my mother could beat up your mother. Happy Mother's Day, and this is Storytime Hockey. After retiring in 1999, it was reported that multiple NHL franchises had approached Wayne Gretzky to be part of their ownership. There were different motivations, both on the part of ownership, the NHL, and Wayne Gretzky. Gretzky had made just over $46 million in playing salary over his career. However, he made significantly more through his business ventures and endorsement deals. 
teams knew that Gretzky's involvement in their organization would automatically provide them with name recognition. Gretzky would also have the chance to use his financial wealth to buy into a franchise, and this was just simply good for the league. Gretzky settled on ownership of the Phoenix Coyotes, and in May 2000, he purchased a 10% share of the franchise. Owner Steve Ellman had approached him to be the minority owner, and they were trying to gather sufficient funding to purchase a team fully. On top of ownership, Gretzky would be provided with the opportunity to shift to the administrative side of the game as an alternate governor, as well as head of hockey operations. Shortly after Gretzky had joined the organization, he appointed Michael Barnett as general manager of the team. Barnett had previously served as Gretzky's player agent, along with a wide variety of top-tier Canadian athletes through the 1980s and 90s. He moved into an executive role for which he had no experience. He ended up serving in this position for six years, and eventually went on to join the New York Rangers as a senior advisor to the general manager, which is a role he occupies today. After solidifying ownership with Jerry Moyes, it became clear that the Coyotes needed to head in a different direction. The first major area of concern was the on-ice product, as the 2003-2004 Coyotes only managed to win 22 games. Coach Bobby Francis was fired after a 20-24-15-3 record, and when Rick Bonus took over on the bench, the team crawled to a 2-win, 12-loss, 3-tie, and 3-overtime loss finish. You certainly cannot fault the Coyotes for trying to do something different when it came to coaches. Additionally to the poor season, it needs to be acknowledged that the NHL went into a lockout the following season. It was during this lockout that significant changes occurred. The NHL is well known to have, over a series of three and one possible upcoming lockout, to use the opportunity to not only develop new collective bargaining agreements, but also to use the negotiating time to solve the issues of the wider hockey world. Consider the current NHL players and their desire to compete in the Winter Olympics. While the participation of the NHL players in a separate hockey tournament does not impact the NHL standings, the players' involvement in tournaments like this increases the games played in a year, which increases the injury risk. It also shuts down the NHL as a business for a month due to the tournament taking place partway through the NHL regular season. It's all but confirmed that the NHL's players' participation in the Olympics will be a lockout negotiating chip. Returning from the 2004-2005 lockout, the NHL and Players Association have followed a similar path and changed the way the game would be played. Significant changes to the rules were made, including reducing the clutching and grabbing of the 1990s and replacing it with an emphasis on skill and speed. Overtimes were replaced with a shortened additional playing frame and a shootout. Ties were eliminated, and the so-called loser point, awarded for earning a tie through regulation and losing in a shootout or overtime, was introduced. It was at the start of this season that the Coyotes announced that Gretzky would be taking over coaching duties from the interim coach Bones. There was a certain amount of fanfare when Gretzky took the role. He attempted to downplay his status in hockey in contrast to the role he was taking on, saying, There's no perfect coach in the world. Coaches are human too. Mistakes are made, but fundamentally... If you're sound, you eliminate as many mistakes as possible. He pointed out that the tactics of hockey had changed little since he entered the league, but the motivation and communication aspects of coaching were what separate coaches into bad, good, or great. Barry Smith, one of his associate coaches, pointed out that it was more than just a coach joining a team. Wayne Gretzky was more than just a former player. He was hands down the best the game had seen. There was no LeBron versus Jordan type of debate in hockey. Gretzky was, and is, in my opinion, the best the sport has seen, despite respectable challenges from Mario Lemieux, 
and Yarmor Yager, as well as modern-day Connor McDavid and Alex Ovechkin. Smith said, It's great for hockey, especially in the United States. I feel that every city we go to, there is going to be a little more pizzazz. Smith wasn't far off the mark in recognizing Gretzky's influence in other markets, especially the one he was about to take the coaching reins in. To really see the influence of Gretzky, we need to dial back to 1988, when Gretzky was traded from the Edmonton Oilers to the LA Kings, Gretzky's presence in California led to a wildfire-like spread of popularity in hockey. USA Hockey recorded over 11,000 players at the time when Gretzky was traded to their Pacific region, compared to today, where they are well over 61,000, including nearly 7,000 female players. In California specifically, their numbers grew by a multiple of five. Additionally, in the Rocky Mountain region, which includes the state of Arizona, they felt the impact of Gretzky there, as the combined totals for the region went from 7,000 to over 56,000. During that time of growth, the team was relocated from Winnipeg and Coyotes were born. Drawing on the success that simply having Gretzky in the hockey market had through the 1990s, it was expected that Gretzky as a coach would continue the long-term growth of the game. The excitement in the organization was at its highest it had been in years. The LA Times reported that the team was unable for the first time to meet the needs of their season ticket renewals, even struggling to answer the phones quickly enough. At the same time though, Gretzky knew that he was going to be more than just a coach. He would be the public face of the success or failure of this exercise, and he was going to be compensated accordingly. While reports of coaches' salaries were hovering around the $500,000 to $1 million a year mark, Gretzky would earn four, five, six, and during his final year, $8 million as a coach. To put it in perspective, Mike Babcock's salary with the Toronto Maple Leafs was $6.25 million annually, and current Florida Panthers head coach Joe Quenville is earning the same. Gretzky would receive as well an additional 10% ownership share in the Coyotes for his work with the team. The first season as coach was a fair representation of both Gretzky's coaching capabilities, the Coyotes' capabilities as far as skill and talent, and the absolute randomness that was the first year out of the NHL lockout. The Coyotes finished with 38 wins, 39 losses, and 5 overtime losses. They finished 18th in goals for and 23rd in goals against. They had two three-game win streaks but were never really capable of creating a run of success that usually accompanies a successful NHL season. A quick look at their season record on a game-by-game -game basis really demonstrates the inconsistency that the team displayed over the season. Shane Doan recorded 30 goals and 36 assists, and Mike Comrie netted 30 goals and 30 assists. Starting goalie Curtis Joseph had a 9.02 save percentage and a 2.91 GAA. The team certainly was not close to competing for a playoff spot, as they finished at the bottom of the Pacific Division, yet they were definitely trending in the right direction. Under their new coach, there was finally some excitement in the arena for the first time in a long time, and some people had hope of a reputable hockey team. This hope was accompanied in the offseason with a list of signings that would give an additional boost to the franchise. Jeremy Roenick returned to the franchise where he had experienced success earlier in his career. Ed Jovanovski joined the franchise to add to the defense, building off of a relationship he had developed with Gretzky during the 2002 Olympic Games. Owen Nolan rounded out the list of large signings in a busy offseason. Yet the year did not go the way the team had hoped. They completed the year with 31 wins and 46 losses and 5 ties, their worst record since moving to the desert. 
They had a stretch between December 28th and January 8th where they won seven games in a row, which is a great accomplishment, but at the same time really draws attention to how bad the rest of the year was. They had more wins than the LA Kings, but the Kings managed to finish ahead of them thanks to the overtime loss point, and the Coyotes finished at the bottom of their division again. They actually started the season with two wins in ten games, and following a 6-1 loss to the Calgary Flames, it was clear the Coyotes were struggling. When asked about how he handled losing as a coach compared to as a player, Gretzky said that as a coach, you dwell on it for hours and hours before the next game. There's no way to really relieve the disbelief of losing a hockey game, he said. If that season wasn't bad enough for Gretzky personally, it was bad enough to lead to the firing of GM Mike Barnett, as well as assistant GMs Cliff Fletcher and Lawrence Gilman. The Coyotes brought in Don Maloney to fulfill the role of general manager on a multi-year deal, but his role was to serve as advisory to Gretzky. The Great One would serve as the coach of the team for the next two seasons, where they managed to win 38 and 36 games, finishing second last in their division both years. At this point, it was no longer just the on-ice product that was impacting what would become of Gretzky's coaching career, but also the financial side of the franchise. In mid-2008, it was leaked to the media the franchise was losing significant money and the likelihood of a financial stabilization was far from possible. On top of losing money, the NHL was funding the franchise and Bill Daly and the NHL offices had stepped in to manage. Jerry Moyes, who had financed the bulk of the 2001 purchase of the franchise, was trying to take the team to bankruptcy court. In doing so, it would provide tech billionaire Jim Balsilli the opportunity to purchase the team with the end goal of moving the franchise to Hamilton, Ontario. Balsilli was the CEO of Research in Motion, the company behind BlackBerry's cell phone technology, which at the time was a larger tech company than Apple. However, the NHL had, and still does have, a strict approach to ownership of their franchises, including relocation and expansion and the league needed the support of the other owners to allow someone to purchase a franchise. Moyes was trying to circumvent the sale rules of the league by going through bankruptcy court. Hearings over the future of the franchise ran through to the start of the NHL training camp at the start of Gretzky's fifth year as coach. Gretzky, who was involved in the proceedings as a creditor, did not take part in coaching the team through training camp. It was reported that Gretzky was holding out to determine if he was wanted by the organization. Scott Burnside summarized it best when he noted that no one would leave the mess in the desert unsoiled and no one would be unblemished. The bankruptcy hearing eventually determined that Balsilli could not purchase a team through bankruptcy court to dodge the league rules, while at the same time, Moyes could not claim bankruptcy as Gretzky and others were not correctly listed as creditors. Details are somewhat murky at this point, as there are various accounts of what had happened. What is clear is that the divorce between Gretzky, the Coyotes, and the NHL was ugly. Gretzky informed the team that he would be stepping down from all roles within the organization the day before training camp. The team would bring in Dave Tippett to coach a franchise, and would lead them on one of their most successful campaigns to date, a 50-win season where they clinched the division title. Gretzky would take a step back from involvement in the NHL, not to return until the late 2010s as the Edmonton Oilers worked to build a new arena and develop the young career of a player named Connor McDavid. It is hard to return to the original question of is Gretzky a quality hockey coach? 
as alternate governor and an individual within the franchise, he surrounded himself with a support staff that was part of a convoluted collection of friends, family, and influencers. His former agent sat as a general manager for five years. Rick Talkett was one of his assistant coaches and was quickly caught up in a gambling ring in New Jersey that handled upwards of $1.7 million in illegal bets. Keith Gretzky, Wayne's brother, was appointed director of amateur scouting in 2006 and then proceeded to have a run of one of the worst draft records over a couple years. It's worth pointing out now, though, that Keith currently occupies the role of assistant general manager to Ken Holland in Edmonton, and in the opinion of many, he has developed into a reputable hockey manager. Grant Fuhrer, a former teammate, was brought in to coach the goaltenders before being demoted after Curtis Joseph's abysmal 2006 and 2007 season, and lastly, Paul Coffey was around the team to help with the power play, which was never a danger of scoring a goal. It is hard to evaluate Gretzky as a coach because his influence on the team was more than just a regular hockey coach. He appointed Barnett to his post as general manager, however as a coach did not really have the players required to challenge for a playoff spot. Consider the players that led the team in points during his coaching tenure. Doan is a fan favorite in the desert, however as a point producer and a play driver, Doan was at best a very good NHL player. Curtis Joseph, Jeremy Roenick, Owen Nolan, Brett Hall, and Ed Jovanovsky were all brought in well into their decline of their career, while at the same time, they were still expected to be effective in a very different game than the one that they had established their careers. The rule changes from the 2004 and 2005 lockout would change the way the game would have to be played, and therefore, coached. His players, however, did for the most part enjoy their time with him as a coach. Mike Johnson, now of TSN fame, points out that if you were retiring and you returned to coach a hockey team and you had the career that Wayne Gretzky had, you must have a significant love and passion for the game. At the same time, however, he acknowledged that things that came easy to Gretzky did not come easily to the team and, quite frankly, anyone who was not Gretzky. During a practice, the team was trying to score 8 goals in a 15-minute time frame off of a drill based in the corners. After no one scored in 15 minutes, the team chuckled at how it was just simply not going their way. Johnson noted that Gretzky's energy changed, and it was clear that Gretzky was recognizing that what was once so simple for him could not be done by others. Forward Tyson Nash finally perhaps points out what may have been the largest underlying factor. Being Wayne Gretzky, he said, is a full-time job on its own. As a coach, he did not need to earn your respect, but being Wayne Gretzky came with its own background requirements, on top of being a father and a husband. Nash points out that because Gretzky could not just be another coach, he would be Gretzky the coach, as one reason that success did not follow Gretzky behind the bench. In the end, Gretzky perhaps joins the ranks of just a regular or an okay NHL coach in history. There will be highlights, however. Alexander Ovechkin's spectacular goal off of his back was actually scored while Wayne Gretzky was on the bench. We look to modern day to see Ovechkin chasing Wayne Gretzky's goal-scoring record. Unfortunately, it is impossible for his coaching record to fade into the background of hockey history. It is impossible to separate Wayne Gretzky as the player from Wayne Gretzky as the coach, or to allow his coaching record to fade into the background of hockey history. His 143 wins place him in the company of coaches like Dave Haxtell, 
Willie Desjardins, Jean Perron, John Paddock, and Mike Milbury. All coaches who, yes, were successful enough to reach the NHL, but not to accomplish any sustained coaching success. Coaches in the NHL have a very short shelf life, and Gretzky was no exception. He makes the list of memorable coaches, however, because of his involvement with ownership, the bankruptcy with the team, and his sudden departure from the league. Lastly, he makes the list of memorable coaches because of the career they had as a player. The situation showed that the old boys club setup of hockey, involving those who were loyal to you or who had supported you, does not always lead to success. Gretzky now serves as a partner and a vice chairman of the Oilers Entertainment Group, the Edmonton Oilers parent company, where he supports the business affairs of the team. Despite having been away from hockey for a couple of years, it is clear that Gretzky's involvement with the NHL is the best option for the long-term growth of the game. Despite the fact that it is clear that he will not be returning to coaching, and that his time in Arizona came to a bad end, many of the people he interacted with and supported remain in the league in some way. Barnett, former general manager of the Coyotes, and Gretzky's former agent, is an advisor in the Rangers organization. Grant Fuhrer, failed goalie coach for the Coyotes, ended up working for the Calgary Flames for two seasons. Paul Coffey has bounced around different support roles and now owns a junior A team in Pickering, Ontario. And as proof of the hockey world being super small, Rick Boness, who Gretzky replaced as coach of the Coyotes, went on to serve as an assistant coach with the Vancouver Canucks and the Tampa Bay Lightning before finally returning to the head coaching role with the Dallas Stars this past year. To date, Rick Boness has 143 coaching wins in his career. He is tied for 109th overall all-time with Wayne Gretzky. The next section will focus on players who you may or may not have forgotten about. With no real rhyme or reason to the selection of these players, this portion of the podcast will be dedicated to players that score occasionally, get traded for a second round pick, and sometimes even win an award. This is Storytime Hockey, the players you forgot about. The past 12 months have been some of the most newsworthy months in the existence of the North Bay Battalion, the major junior hockey franchise based three hours north of Toronto in the Ontario Hockey League. The league has seen its fair share of NHL All-Stars come through its ranks, and to play in the OHL, players must enter the Priority Selection Draft, one of a handful of entry drafts that the league holds. North Bay held the first overall selection this past year and selected Ty Nelson of the Toronto Junior Canadiens AAA team. He was likely the second best prospect in the pool, as the consensus best player Adam Fantilli committed to the United States Hockey League's Chicago Steel. This wasn't the first time that the battalion were involved in a noteworthy first overall selection. In their second season, when they were based in Brampton, Ontario, they missed out on selecting Jason Spezza, who went to the Mississauga Ice Dogs, a team who had entered the OHL the year prior alongside the battalion. The Ice Dogs had finished with only 11 points in their first season, compared to the battalion's 19. To make it all that more interesting, Spezza had already played a full season, including All-Star Game, with the Battalion the year prior. As he played under an old rule, 
that allowed players to play for their hometown team one year in advance of their draft, but then had to enter the draft when eligible. It was an unfortunate circumstance that they missed out on drafting a hometown product, which certainly would have helped both the on-ice and the off-ice product for a fledgling OHL franchise. But the battalion had been fortunate enough to pick first overall in their inaugural season over their expansion counterparts, with the first pick in the franchise's history and the only other first overall pick in their existence, the battalion selected Jay Harrison. Harrison played minor hockey in Whitby, Ontario, and then a year of Junior A with the Oshawa Legionnaires, where he played 42 games and recorded one goal and 11 assists to accompany 143 penalty minutes. His abilities in the defensive end of the ice, along with his tenacity against other players, made him the first overall selection for the new OHL franchise. In his first year with the battalion, he recorded one goal and 14 assists, along with 108 penalty minutes. The battalion that year finished with a record of 8 wins and 57 losses and 3 ties, with 362 goals against, an average of 5.3 goals against per game. Say what you will about the merits of the plus-minus stat, but Harrison's minus 46 certainly stands out. Fellow defenseman Jason Miliko can rest easy knowing that he recorded the first goal in franchise history despite his team worst, minus 71. This would be the only season in Brampton that they would not make the playoffs except for 2001 and 2002. Harrison and the Battalion experienced more success in their second year with a record of 25, 28, and 11 and would finish 7th in the conference, only to lose to the Erie Otters in the first round of the playoffs. The Battalion team was led by future NHL players Rafi Torres and Rusty Klesla. Harrison would record 2 goals and 8 assists this season and managed to significantly improve to plus 11. In his third year of junior, he would record 4 goals and 15 assists to accompany 112 penalty minutes and play in the World Junior Championship winning bronze with Team Canada. He would be selected by the Toronto Maple Leafs in the 2001 NHL Entry Draft in the third round with the 82nd overall pick. He would return to the battalion in 2001-2002 for his draft plus one season, recording his most successful offensive junior year with 12 goals and 31 assists. The team would miss the playoffs this year, but he would join the St. John's Maple Leafs of the American Hockey League to finish the season. He also made his second appearance with the Canadian junior hockey team this year, winning silver, losing to the Russian squad in Czech Republic. At the end of this year, he signed his entry-level deal with the Toronto Maple Leafs on March 24, 2002. Harrison would never replicate the offensive numbers he put up in his final year of junior hockey. However, he went on to establish himself a successful hockey career as a dependable blue liner. Harrison would spend the next four years playing with the Maple Leaf affiliates in the AHL, establishing himself as a reliable blue liner who created opportunities for his defensive partners to take offensive risks. He would spend the next six years of his career, mostly with the American Hockey League team, while supporting the Maple Leafs NHL franchise for small time frames through injuries. He would record 32 goals and 65 assists over six seasons with the AHL Maple Leafs and Marlies. With a list of younger players joining the franchise and his development curve at its peak, the Toronto organization and Harrison were unable to come to an agreement 
and Harrison signed a one-year deal with the National League in Switzerland with E.V. Zug, only to return to Toronto at the end of the season for seven games. In free agency that summer, he would leave the only franchise that he knew to play with the Carolina Hurricanes where he signed a one-year two-way contract that would pay him $500,000 at the NHL level and $125,000 with their American Hockey League affiliate. It was with the Hurricanes that Harrison had his most prolonged successful experience. He scored his first goal on October 9, 2009 versus the Florida Panthers. He would play six seasons with the Hurricanes, recording 21 goals and 48 assists, all while maintaining his reputation as a reliable blue liner. He only once during his first season with the team spent any time in the American Hockey League. It was also here that he signed his most lucrative NHL deal, a three-year contract worth $4.5 million. Harrison would be traded to the Winnipeg Jets for a sixth-round pick midway through the 2014 season. After finishing the year with their AHL affiliate, the Manitoba Moose, the following year, Harrison was moved to the Chicago Blackhawks along with Matt Fraser and Andrew Ladd in a blockbuster deadline deal that saw them traded in exchange for Marco Dano and two draft picks. It was after this that Harrison's playing career would come to an end. He recorded 23 goals and 52 assists at the NHL level over 372 games. While on the ice, Harrison played an unspectacular game. It was his off-ice abilities and personality that drew interest around the league. He earned a degree in psychology from Athabasca University. He taught himself guitar, violin, and piano, and was often referred to as one of the most in-depth thinkers on the ice. In the end though, Harrison knew that there was a higher calling than simply hockey. He held interests in family counseling, developmental psychology, and the dynamics of relationships. Following his career, his family moved to Bowmanville, and he co-founded the Whippy Watch Company with five others to create unique timepieces designed to focus on specific Canadian achievements. He also had the opportunity to reflect on what his next steps would be. In his op-ed on his retirement, he noted that the usual response to his retirement was shock and conversations that exchanged the themes of oh no, don't say that, and well, you did well. None of these were celebratory of the achievement of retirement. He was determined that despite the sentiments from those who spoke to him, that the best was not behind him and he still had value to bring to the world around him. Harrison was approaching a crossroads in the establishment of his athletic identity. The notion of who he was and the notion of who he was in groups, institutions, and cultures was shifting significantly. Removing the institution of hockey, his own self-identity would shift as well. It is in this time frame of an athlete's career that we often see professional athletes struggle to move forward, especially if financially they did not accomplish enough in their playing careers to actually retire. Harrison joined Game Change Athlete Development Services and Consultancy, a group that offers organizational solutions, career strategy, assessment, and research for professional athletes. He appeared on the Canadian TV show Dragon's Den as part of Bennett's Choice Brain Evolve, where he is Director of Athlete Integration. Brain Evolve is a supplement that claims to reduce the symptoms of concussions and support athlete health in their recovery. As if to emphasize how small the hockey world is again, one of the dragons on the show is Jim Treliving, the franchise baron of Jiffy Lube and Boston Pizza, as well as the father of Brad Treliving, the current general manager 
of the Calgary Flames. Harrison and business partner Matthew Bennett did reach a deal with Treliving and Michael Weckerly for $200,000. Harrison had less than a spectacular NHL career, but he demonstrates something significant in the world of hockey today. In a sport where we celebrate the athletes with endorsement deals and multi-million dollar contracts each year, there are players left behind who often struggle following their career. For every player who earns $5 million a year, there are 100 different players who make less than $100,000 annually in a profession that has high expenses as well as a limited window of earning. Fortunately for Harrison, he was able to turn his intellect and awareness into business opportunities and provided for himself and his family after his playing career was over. Hopefully, he continues to experience business success so that his hockey stats can continue to only be part of his story, not his entire story, especially that minus 46. Storytime Hockey is written and produced by me, Travis Duncan, proud member of the Round Earth Society. Thank you for listening. Please click like and subscribe to this podcast and leave a review. Follow us on Twitter at Storytime Hockey. Every interaction we have with you increases the likelihood that we will appear on your friend's suggested podcast list. So be a good neighbor and click five stars. Thank you for listening and we will talk to you next time.